0: As we share, as I shared last week, we began a series uh, out of uh, 2 Corinthians, so I'm going to actually ask you to turn there now, if you would, please. A uh, little context, um, we taught 1 Corinthians here on Sunday morning a couple years ago, and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are two very different books in their primary aim. Uh, the, in, in 1 Corinthians, you have Paul, who had planted the church in Corinth, uh, the original pastor of their church. Uh, had written uh, the first letter as a corrective letter for how they worshiped together. Uh, the, the way their gatherings would would happen together. There were things that were going on that were not constructive or beneficial to the church. Additionally, there was known sin among some of the leaders and prominent people of the church that was going uh, unaddressed and was allowed to quite frankly uh, continue to be practiced unchecked and so the first letter of corinthians it, it is really about correcting those two things, how they gathered together in worship and worship and then dealing with sin uh, among the leadership of the of the church second corinthians different now what you have going on is that that uh, Paul has now made several visits to the church in Corinth uh, and they were confrontive, they were corrective, they were painful, uh, even by the terms of, of Paul saying, making another painful visit to you, which we'll read that here in a moment. Uh, but they, they weren't easy uh, encounters that Paul had had. And he wrote multiple letters, not just First and Second Corinthians, there were other letters that were written and based on the description of even Paul's uh, own uh, words is that they were difficult, they were harsh letters. And so you have a relationship that is fractitious, it's, it's certainly not at a place where there's warm feelings. In fact, you're going to discover as we go into Second Corinthians that the church in Corinth actually began to say that they did not believe that Paul was legitimately an apostle, claiming that, that he had no authority. They were at a place where they were, they were not wanting to deal with some of the issues that were within, and so one of the easiest ways to deal with Paul is to just simply say, you have no authority over us. You have no legitimate uh, leadership over us, even though he was an apostle. So he begins the letter, as, we, as you heard last week when Pastor Matt spoke, that, uh, that he began with, you know, I'm going through hardship. There are so many things that, that Paul was going through. There's actually a list of things here in the book of Corinthians that, that we'll talk about, like how many times he'd been shipwrecked, how many times he'd been beaten, how many times he had been stoned. And, uh, and I'm not talking about drugs, uh, here, just for a moment. But uh, he, he was definitely under the persecution of those who hated Christianity. And and he was saying as he began this letter to this church who was not in agreement with him, who was who had a broken relationship with them, he says, you know, I'm going through some pretty harsh stuff. It has gone pretty rough, and and yet I've experienced the compassion of God, I've experienced the, the love of God and the comfort of God, and I believe I'm going through that so that I can help others, even people like you, because the church in Corinth was going through difficult things, and so he aligned himself with them, he was aligning his heart to say, we are going through pain and suffering so that we can comfort each other from the comfort and love we've learned of God. And so as we're going into this letter, he, he starts with that warmth of, of the first part of chapter 1, but then he starts acknowledging the brokenness between them. And, 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 he, and he immediately begins to speak to the what is going to be a hard conversation. Now, I, I remember when I, I was hiring our, a lot of our pastoral team in, in the year of 2012, we, we hired three new team members that year, and in the process of hiring the executive pastor, Joel Lingenfelter made a comment that stood out to me uh, when asked about what his, his perceived strengths were. And he said that, that this statement, he said that, I, um, I do not dodge hard conversations. Now, that might be seen as a strange way to respond to a strength or a, um, a gift. But, but that was an important thing because often in pastoral work and just dealing with people, there are times where difficult conversations need to be had. But what too often happens is we avoid them and we withhold from them. And so what we're going to be looking at today is the value of having hard conversations, and now you just thought, I wished I'd have stayed home and listened to Dr. Stanley, right? <laughs> well, um, and it, I, I will tell you, this is actually, I believe, a very important lesson that Paul gives here in 2 Corinthians that especially in our culture today needs to be heard. So when I was looking back over my lifetime, I decided in light of this sermon, what were the five most uh, formational moments in my life that matured me or corrected me or, or made me a better leader? What, what were the top five? And when I went back and assessed the top five, they all dealt with some form of hard conversations. The first one being when I had those two friends that were, that were killed in two different car accidents within four days of each other, and how on the night before the one was killed, I was asked the question... Do you believe there's a heaven and a hell? And if so, how do you get to, each, to either place? And I remember thinking how I was a closet Christian and, and I didn't really, I knew the answers to that, but I didn't want to speak and be on record for the truth of that moment. And I rationalized in my head that I can have that hard conversation at another point, thinking there would be more opportunities to speak into those who are there. Not realizing that just four hours later, two of the people here in the room were going to be dead. That was a hard conversation that I avoided. And yet that difficult moment was very formational in me as I realized that sometimes hard conversations are necessary. A few years later, actually two years later, my, uh, I'm now living in Kansas City and, and one of uh, my, my best friends comes in and he is shaking. Uh, it's right after school. He comes into the classroom as I was kind of doing some last bit of work and he's shaking and because he, he wants to talk to me about something. And I said, dude, what, what are you nervous about? He says, I need to talk to you about our friend group. You see, over the previous three months, we had gathered a group of kids that every Saturday night after this Christian youth rally, we would go downtown uh, to Kansas City, and we would come up with these great adventures that we would create and have so much fun doing. And, and, and I was one of the lead organizers of it and, and creating these great moments. And, and so I was taking great pride in the, in the fun that we were having. And, and, uh, and Neil brings up this idea of there's something wrong with the friend group. So I asked him, I said, what's wrong? And, and he says, well you're being a jerk. And I said, what do you mean I'm being a jerk? He says, as we've been having more fun and you've been organizing a lot of this stuff, several of us have brought other friends that we wanted to go along and be a part of these fun moments, but you would make sure that they knew that they were not wanted. You wanted to keep the circle by the circle you desired and not allow us to bring in others to be part of this. And I said, well, is this just your perspective or is this all of us? And he says, actually, the group was ready to vote you off the island. I said, what do you mean? He goes, everybody was feeling like it's time for you to not be along if you can't accept other people. This was my best friend telling me that basically I was undesired. But I needed to hear that. It was one of the best conversations he could have shared with me as I realized that I had become very selfish and I had begun to control things and not allow others to be part of it. And it was an important formational moment for me in learning how to truly be a friend to anybody as I was at that point too selective and was basically deciding that I will decide who gets to be a part of our friend group. It was forever changing for me in, in the regards of, of how I interrelated with other people. It was so formational, but it required a very difficult moment between me and my best friend. Then later, about two years later, I'm now in college, and, and, and a friend of mine uh, that was just an acquaintance at the time had who was the president of our student body at our university, he had moved from his dorm that he had been in for three years, had moved to the dorm that I was in, because he had, over the summer, been praying, like, God, I want to see if you're truly real and you truly change lives. Show me somebody that has been changed, and I'll get near them. He felt like God had pointed him to me. So he moved dorms to be in the dorm, to be near me because supposedly I was going to be that person that would show him that God truly does change lives. I'm having an encounter with him in the month of October. It only took two months for him to become greatly disappointed. He asked me, he says, would you, would you be able to, to go out and, and we go get a Coke or something at the pizza shop? And so we went to the pizza shop, and, and while there, he tells me the story of how he had come to the dormitory and why he had chosen to do that. I was feeling really good and affirmed that that was something that he had felt would, would draw him towards God. But then it took a real quick turn, because he told me that he became even more disillusioned because he was very disappointed Once he got near me, because he said I was the most prideful man he had ever come along. I was the most prideful man he had ever met. That was a hard conversation. I'm in a pizza shop and I, and I wanted, I, every part of me wanted to just run away in that moment to not have to hear and listen to this about, about that I'm now the most prideful man and, and basically connecting the dots that, that he is saying that I have now kept him from understanding who God is, which then, which really wrecked me because the last thing I'd want to do is stand in the way of somebody's journey between them and God. But that conversation was hard, yes, but it was so important for me in my journey of understanding what it means to have a humble and contrite heart before God and before others. And then lastly, I I, I will, or a couple more in regards to leadership, there was a hard conversation that happened in my first year as a youth pastor when I took a group of students from from southern Missouri up to St. Louis to go to a, a St. Louis Cardinals baseball game. It was Christian night at the game, and there was going to be a a Christian baseball player who was going to share his faith. During this time, uh, in this actual season, the Mississippi River was rising, and it it was flooding parts of St. Louis, and it was flooding parts along the river in Missouri, and it was a pretty significant deal. And, And so I had rationalized that when the game was over, and the testimony was beginning to be shared, that I rationalized, maybe we should leave a little sooner so we can get back to the church on time forgetting the fact that the whole reason why we even came to that baseball game was so that kids that were with me, that did not know Jesus, could hear the gospel. We get back. We're on time. I'm handing the kids over. I'm proud of that moment that we made a trip all the way to St. Louis. It was my first trip as a youth pastor. We got them back on time, and I'm thinking I'm going to get attaboys from parents that thank you for getting my kid back on time. And what ended up happening was a parent pulled me aside. Can I talk to you? I said, Sure. So we come alongside, and and he speaks to me. And his name was Tom. And Tom says, "You know, my boys brought two other boys with them on this trip that neither of them know Jesus." And the way I understand it is that you left before they got a chance to hear the gospel. And I'm looking at him, and I realize I'd failed. I'd failed to value what was most important in that moment was for those kids to hear the gospel. It was very formational in making sure I had my values straight as a leader, but it required a very humbling conversation between me and that parent. And then another moment happened when one of my youth leaders pulled me aside after a retreat and handed me a four-page document as to how that retreat could be better. In this document, it speaks to things in pretty strong hyperbole. And and it was very hard to be able to read that letter and not get defensive. So finally, I had to say, Lord, I'm sure there's something in this letter I'm supposed to hear, but I can't hear it through all the screaming at me. What is it I'm supposed to hear? And it zeroed in, and I realized in the final paragraph really what the whole letter was about was that I was being challenged and charged to take the advice of Jethro, being the father-in-law of Moses, when he came up to Moses and said, Moses, you're doing too much. And as a result, people aren't getting what they need. What this leader was saying is, I was doing too many of the tasks. I was keeping it under my control and I needed to be able to, to entrust others so that more could be done and done in greater excellence. That became so important in my formation as a leader to have heard that from somebody who was screaming in my ear, but yet there was truth that I needed to hear. As I look back, I genuinely believe these are five of the top five most formational moments in my character and in my understanding as a leader, and yet every single one of them dealt with something very difficult to hear or something difficult that should have been said. My observation is this, that too often in culture, each of us rob another from being able to mature and have that formational moment because we choose to withhold a hard conversation. People are in need of truth, and if they don't have access to the truth, we're to rely upon our own self-awareness, and often our awareness is flawed. We need those who we genuinely care about us and love us to be willing to speak into our lives. But we often make it so hard for them to speak into our lives because of the way we might be defensive or how we would receive it or we give the appearance that please don't tell me anything I don't want to hear. We do this and it's become so part of culture that it it causes many people to, to live very inflated egos. And as a result, they don't know how to handle Failure. It was an interesting moment for me a few years ago when I was at the end of the final baseball game of the year. As a coach, I decided to sit the team in a circle and to go around that circle and tell the team, each player, what they did well that year, what their strengths are, where they improved the most, but also something they can work on during the offseason to get better as a player. I did that with each and every player around that circle. So I affirmed them, I showed the growth, I exposed the growth in them, and then I said, now here's something you can work on in the off-season. Two days later, I get a phone call from one of the parents saying that she was greatly upset that I had berated her son in front of the entire team. And I was so under, like, confused because I, I didn't berate any of the kids at any point, so I didn't even know what moment she was talking about. And then she brings up that, that apparently after the last game of the year that I chose to berate her son in front of the whole team, and he will never play baseball again. And so she wanted me to hear that. And Perhaps I should stop coaching boys if I'm going to hurt them so deeply. So then I'm like, you mean you're talking about the moment that I had after this game? She said, yes. And I said, well, this is what I did. And I explained to her what I did. And she says, well, apparently you did this only for my son. I don't think you did it for the rest of the players. And I was like, so this was told to you. And so it ends up being this this discussion. And and I had to try to defend the thing that I just simply gave an area where the student, this player, needed to improve. But obviously... He could not receive that well. Now, that might seem as that youth baseball, well, of course, they're just young and immature, and that's an overprotective parent. But it's also an issue among adults. This past week, in ESPN, they did an evaluation of every NFL team that did not make the playoffs. And in this one team, they, they said that the reason why this team went from first to last was because there was a generation gap issue. So here is the generation gap issue by the words of the players themselves, and I quote, we have a different thing with these young guys now. Young guys need to understand what it takes. I didn't always understand when I first came in the league. I didn't always understand when I was coming in that that, that there were things that I needed to learn, but I also was not afraid of the truth either. We can't be afraid of the truth. Not everybody can take the criticism that's too hard. This player was speaking to those. He started the statement by saying, I was born in the 80s. I don't get these players that are born in the 90s. That puts it into context, doesn't it? But then a rookie that's on that same team who had been caught on the sidelines by cameras as being talked to by veteran players and dismissing them and ignoring them. This player, in response to the same statements about about this generation gap issue, he just said this, I handle my business out on the field. That's where I learn. So you have it right there that the veteran players are saying, we need to be accountable. We need to be able to speak truth. And in and, and order to hear truth, then you can get better as a player. And as a result, we get better as a team. But no, the younger generation that's born in the 90s says, I do better when I just learn on the field. In other words, I don't want to have to work in between games. I don't want to have to receive truth or hard conversations from other people. And unfortunately, I'm speaking about the Denver Broncos, my favorite team. But when I'm reading this, it's like, you know, it's interesting that, that it's perceived by those who are born in the 80s that those born in the 90s and later do not know how to handle truth. But yet, truth is so important in order to improve in whatever it is you do, not only in sports, but in careers. And truth, quite frankly, helps us improve in relationships, which is what Paul is doing here, is that he is about to have a very transparent, very transparent letter that is going to be speaking harsh truths, but is important in order for there to be true growth in the church in Corinth and also in him. So again, the context is very important to understand, that Paul is the founder of this church. He had pastored this church in its first couple of years. And, and during that time, he knew the people. He would established the leaders. He had grown the leaders. People had come to Christ under his leadership and under his message and his speaking. And so this was an important relationship between a, a leader and a founding pastor and the church. He then leaves to go on and plant other churches. And in this letter, he writes down that he has had many painful visits. So he's gone back to Corinth to visit them to make sure things are going, moving along. We also know that he corrects things. We, we've seen that in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so this relationship has been rather contentious since he left. But now he wants to acknowledge that there is things that are so important to hear and that if it means being difficult initially there's hope for a greater relationship. So I want us to begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12. And we're going to see how Paul handles a difficult conversation. He doesn't dodge it. He takes it head on, but we're gonna see how he handles it after speaking about that he wants them to receive comfort. He wants them to, to, to go to the God of all comfort, but that we can help each other through comfort. But now we need to talk about the hard things. So verse 12, he says this. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationship with you And it it has been communicated that we are doing so in integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of our Lord Jesus. So let me begin there. So he's starting a hard conversation. Now he hasn't gotten into the the issues. In fact, we won't even get into the issues today. This is literally laying the groundwork for a very difficult relational letter. He starts with saying that his conscience is clear, that he has done a check of of his actions, his words, in regards to how he's interrelated with them. So in other words, he's doing an integrity check. Have I spoken plainly to them? Have I been speaking complete truth? Have I muddied the waters unfairly? Have I been sincere in my godliness or am I being half-hearted? So he's done a self-check and he's appealing to them. It's like, listen, I have checked to make sure that everything I've ever spoken to you, everything I've ever done among you is with the highest level of integrity and with godly sincerity. So he's done this, this check and even appeals to them to, not if, to, to even validate it. So can you not tell that I have, that, that I have spoken with, with full integrity and truth? Can you not tell that if there's been godly sincerity in all that I've ever son, said or done? And so he appeals to them directly as witnesses to that fact. But then he says this in verse 13. Not only has he done a self-check before them, A self-check and made himself accountable to them. But then he also says, I speak with clarity. In other words, he makes sure they understand. So look how he says, he says, for we do not uh, write anything to you that you cannot read or understand. And even if there is partial understanding, he says, it's our hope that you'll gain full understanding. Now this is really important when it comes to hard conversations. Because the natural tendency that I have when I'm going into a hard conversation, is to try to make it more palatable in in the way I say it. And sometimes at at the cost of being clear. We don't want the person being so hurt. We don't want them being so hindered. We don't want them being so angry at us. So we kind of soften it. And we try to make it a little softer on the edges. And sometimes at the cost of being understood. There are times that even with, within my own family that, that when I'm trying to speak something and I'm trying to be easy on it, and I, I find that I do this more often with my son. And that's because he knows how to argue back better than anybody else in my family. But that's, uh, that's an issue between he and I. He learns it honestly from me. But, but what I, I remember this moment a couple years ago where I'm, I'm sharing something with him and, and I'm trying, I need to say something that's pretty hard for him to hear. And so I'm kind of softening it so that it doesn't hurt him so badly and so that he doesn't hate me so much as a result of it. But in the process of saying it like that, I could tell I got the, the deer in the, in the headlights look at you know, looking right back at me. And I'm like, am I making any sense to you? And he looked back and he said, not at all. And I just remember thinking, okay, I'm going to have to shoot more straight. And so I, I remember, and again, this is a couple years ago, and I remember saying, being a little bit more blunt, and he didn't like what I had to say, but, but I had to be more straightforward so that he could understand what I was saying. And I, and I think that's just so common, that sometimes when we know we've got something that, that we really need to say for the benefit of the relationship or for the benefit of the other individual, that sometimes we try to water it down so it's, not, so it's more swallowable, but then it's also not understandable. And so with Paul, he says, I make sure that when I'm speaking that you can definitely understand it. So he's done the self-check before them where they can call him into account and he makes sure that they can also understand it. But thirdly, I think in, in the way he's starting this conversation that's really important for us to grab is the tone of it. And I think this is probably what is most important to all of us. If we're in a difficult conversation, it's the tone that's going to help you receive it. So look what he says in verse 14. At the end of verse 13, he leads into 14. He says, And I hope that as you have understood us in part, that you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you on the day of our Lord Jesus. So in the tone of this, he's acknowledging this is a hard conversation. I'm appealing to you for, my, for integrity and motives that you can do a check of me. I'm going to make sure I'm going to speak so you can understand. But I want you to know, my hope is that we can boast of each other on the day that Jesus comes. That we can boast of each other. And that kind of hopeful language is important to be received. That what the end game is for Paul is that that eventually he can boast of them and they can boast of him. And so there was a hopeful tone that was placed in this that that they they could hear and therefore receive. So Paul's motivation is that there will be a day that we can celebrate each other. That is his motive, and that's the context. And so then he gets into, okay, so now he set the context for this hard conversation. He has to deal with something that's kind of in their crawl a little bit, that's bothering them. You see, Paul had said, I'm going to come visit you. And, and not only because he'd already done several visits, but he said he was going to come visit them while he was on his way to Macedonia and that he would visit them again when he was leaving Macedonia, heading back to Judea. And so apparently there was an issue that they took because he didn't show up at either time. So let's start reading in verse 15. So because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you. Again, he was confident of this hope to boast in each other. So I was confident of this, that I wanted to visit you. First, so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle then? Was I fickle then when I intended to do this? Or do I make plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes and no, no? Then he goes on to say, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, that be me, Silas, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. What is he saying? That sounds like a bunch of baloney to cover over his decision to change his, his course in action. I mean, think about it. He's going through and he's giving a bunch of things. Was I fickle to say that I was coming to you on my way to Macedonia and and then also to come to visit you on my way back to Judea? Was I fickle to have said that I was going to do that and not do that? And then he goes on to give some nice oration saying, oh, but in Jesus Christ, it's always yes. I mean, that, quite frankly, is a statement that I could see myself making and getting the the distraction from off of me, but onto God himself. Now, keep in mind, Paul is speaking very specifically of himself. It's very blunt. The scriptures do not cut corners. It always speaks the truth. The reality is, Paul said he was going to come, and he didn't. And the reality is, they were upset by this, and so he's speaking to something that was really important. He was speaking to the fact that, that in yes, there's yeses and there's noes." And, and they all knew the teachings in scripture that, that Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 5 that, that you should let your yeses be yeses and your noes no's. Because in culture, we like to make people feel good in the moment. So we'll promise them the moon, but then not deliver. And so that happens even today is that we'll to get somebody in the moment to be happy with us we'll say whatever we can in that moment to get them to be happy with us and then we do not follow through. So Jesus had confronted that idea. So let your yeses be yeses and your noes noes. So that's why Paul brings up it's like okay, so am I being fickle just like the rest of the world? Am I being fickle? Now he's about to explain the fact as to why he did not come. But he wanted them to get their focus first and standing in the right place. He did not want the standing of them as a church to be in regards to a human standing. A standing between them and Paul, therefore their standing is good, but rather a standing between them and God where the yeses are always yeses. Because look at verse 21, what he says there. He says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. This is after he's just said, in Christ the yes is always yes, right? So his words always mean what they say. But he says, if we stand there with Christ, we'll stand firm. Continuing on, verse 22. So he set uh, in us a seal of ownership upon us, and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Now that, Not that we lord over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. He did not want his not showing up and being with them to cause their faith To falter, He wanted their faith to not be in Paul, but in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, whose yeses are always yeses. And so to get them off of the argument of you said you were going to come and use it as a bullying point between them and Paul, he's saying, listen, this isn't about whether or not I came to you based on a word of yes or no, but rather this is about us standing firm in God alone. But the reason why I didn't come was so that we didn't bring another painful visit. It was to spare you so that you can stand firm. So now he's going to explain why his not coming was going to help them to stand firm. So verse 1 says this of chapter 2. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would share in my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So you have this significant statement that is being made by Paul saying, listen, I didn't come because you need to be glad. He had already been that hurtful vessel that was helping them see the areas they needed to grow in. But now another visit would have actually been harmful. Why? Because I believe that when you know you've spoken truth, the tendency is, is that I can fix it. I can be the one that can help it feel better. And the reality was, is Paul needed to let the message resonate in their hearts and deal with it between them and God. God used Paul to speak the truth, but now they needed to rely upon God and stand upon God alone and not just be about reconciling between them and Paul. Paul. So this is being being very clear that it's about reconciliation between them and God and not being so much focused in on reconciliation between Paul and them. So then he says, you know, I want grief to not be the definition of a relationship, but rather gladness. And then in verse 3, he says that these hard things were said so that eventually they could come to a place of joy. Now, that's kind of otherworldly. We don't often think that if I've got to say something very difficult to somebody, that it actually could lead to joy. Well, if there is a direction that they're going that it's continuing to hinder them, then if you actually are able to speak it, then joy can be in the end. I had no idea that I was making miserable my group of friends, but I was. And if, I, if my friend, Neil, hadn't said anything to me, I would have been the one isolated out and made miserable and they would have gone on. But because the hard word was spoken, I ended up being given the opportunity to apologize and developed an even bigger and better friend group. And as a result, I became a better friend. And so I I look back and I just say, I get this. I get that if you can hear that hard thing, that it can lead to better joy, even if you don't realize you're lacking it. So hard things can also be said then to show that you truly do care. You see, I look back and I thank God for my friend Neil because he actually showed me love. It's not easy as a teenager to go and tell another teenager that you're screwing up. It's not easy for adults to do that with each other. But to think a teenager actually did that with another, I stood to benefit He showed me greater care and love. Rather than see me get voted off the island, so to speak, he wanted to see me change. So he spoke the hard words, even though he was shaking in his boots doing so. I look back and I say, thank you, God, for all these conversations I shared with you where there was somebody had to take the risk to say the difficult thing. But everybody else, not only me, stood to gain. I became a better youth pastor who was committed to the right values. I became a better youth pastor in empowering others to work alongside of me so that more students could be ministered to. All that happened because people took the risk to show me greater love by speaking the hard truth into my life. So I think through the context of us here. It's true that often the reason why people don't share hard truth is because people don't receive hard truth well. So there's two sides of this coin we need to receive. One is that if if you have a relationship with a spouse or you're a parent or you have a friend who you know, you see things are are not going well for them and you see that they're on a a track that's going to harm them, and you've withheld truth from them. You need to be able to speak that and say, God, do a check. Am I operating in integrity in this? Am I, am, I, am I seeing this with godly sincerity? Am I hindering their journey? And then, Lord, if it is your calling, help me to speak with a hopeful tone. Help me to speak with the right tone that they will receive it. And then I will also accept whatever the results might be, even if it means a time of friction. You see, I I believe that in these relationships that if we don't speak those things, we literally are saying we value more the peace side of this relationship rather than the helpful side in that relationship. The other side of this is that if somebody actually gets bold enough to say a hard thing to you, can you not receive it? Even if you don't like it, can you not receive it? In the situation that I'm in, when, you know, I'm working with a lot of people, quite frankly, I end up receiving hard words very often. And I'd like to tell you it's gotten easier to receive them. I can tell you that inside of me, the disdain for hearing hard things has never waned. But I believe my attitude in receiving it towards the person has gotten better. But it's still a journey. It, it, we None of us like to hear hard things. But I've learned to realize that it's often in those hard things, I stand to gain the most. And so it, it's only wise to receive from one another and to receive it humbly. And when you hear a hard thing, even if in the moment you don't understand it, do what Paul says, where, where in time you might understand greater. You right now only understand in part, but maybe you'll understand in greater, and then we can brag of each other eventually. Amen. So we've got to receive from each other, and we've also got to be able to offer each other so that our joy can be made complete. So the three takeaways as I've looked at this is, as Paul's laying the groundwork for a very hard conversation with this church, I learned, I see it this way. Number one, sincere love is best expressed often in difficult conversations. Some of the most loving moments between myself and another individual is often when we are speaking the thing that's very difficult for us to say and also difficult for it to be received. But you're going past the difficulty for the sake and benefit of that individual and also the relationship. That is where love is in its purest of form. Because it's risky. Secondly, truth is so vital in our own personal maturation and in the health of our relationships. When we choose not to have these hard conversations, truth is what's being lost. And so we deal with a false sense of reality. So if we allow ourselves to humbly go into these, these relationships speaking truth, then we all stand to gain because it brings things into the light. And that's where God operates. He doesn't put things in the shadows. He brings it right front and center into the light so that we can deal with it directly. And then lastly, the takeaway is this, and, I, and, I, and it really stood out to me as, as I was reading that part about the yeses and the yeses and the noes, noes, that when we're dealing with these relationships, the true test of whether or not your security and your esteem is upon God or is it upon the condition of the relationships between you and others is when we are tested, am I willing to experience difficulty in a relationship for the sake of the benefit of that other individual? And if your esteem is wrapped up in the condition of those relationships, you won't do it. You won't do it. But if your standing and your, con- your, your esteem and your confidence is standing in God and God alone, then you will do the hard thing because you're standing in your security in God, not upon the difficulty of a relationship. So it's so important that as you go and navigate relationships, which is always a challenge, the relationships will always bring beauty, and difficulty. But if we stand on God, whose yeses are always yeses, then we will be able to avoid overdependency upon relationships. And as a result, we can avoid being those fickle human beings that we sometimes can be. So we stand here saying, you know what? Paul's charge is we stand firm not upon a relationship that can easily be broken, but we stand firm on a relationship with God who never breaks his word. So let us receive what Paul has said and receive humbly the constructive word that we receive from others truth, even if it hurts, and we offer truth to others, even if it's difficult. And we do so trusting in our security found in God alone. Let's pray. So, Father God, I would admit, and, I, and I'm the first one in the room to say I really, really do not like hard conversations. But I also have learned that I benefit greatly when somebody is bold enough and loving enough to share a hard conversation. And Lord, I've also learned that when you finally help me to get past my own fear of difficulty in a relationship to share and speak truth that is so desperately needed in a situation, I've seen, Lord, how you use it. So God, forgive us when we withhold from each other truth. God, forgive us when we don't operate with humility and with a sincere love towards one another. So Lord, help us to stand stronger than ever, finding our esteem and our security in you and you alone so that we can then be healthy in our relationships with others. So I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So God, we stand where our esteem is in your hands, not in the hands of the conditions of other relationships. But yet you've made us to be relational beings. It's difficult. We know we can be fickle. We know that we can be defensive. We know that we can also be harsh in the way we do these things. So God, I just ask that that we would be gentle, we'd be respectful, that we'd be hopeful, that we'll be clear and understandable, but that we will operate with the highest level of integrity and godly sincerity and with love in our relationship. So God, use us to be your ambassadors of greater healing as we advocate for truth in our lives. And so God, we acknowledge you as being the one we can trust more than anything else. So we stand in confidence of you and you alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So be gentle, be respectful, but be truthful. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.